Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. church family for some time uh, may remember that I used to um, have a dog in the house named Punkin, heretofore known as Punkin the dog. <laughs> and Punkin would do whatever I asked her to do. If I said, Punkin, sit, Punkin would sit. If I uh, said, um, well, that was pretty much it. You know, but uh, but this was a this was a well-behaved dog. She she would uh, she would behave herself as long as she was indoors and knew that I could get at her. Um, uh, she she would behave as long as as I was there and and. But every now and then, Punkin would get out and she would start running the neighborhood, and I would go out after Punkin. Here, Punkin. Come here, Punkin. Come on, pumpkin, and she'd look at me and laugh. <laughs> she'd just laugh and take off and keep, and she wouldn't run away. She'd just trot away, you know. And uh, so finally it dawned on me, there's one command that pumpkin always understands. So I'm running through the neighborhood and I'm yelling, sit, pumpkin, sit, <laughs> sit, pumpkin. And this dog's laughing at me. She just turns around, laughs at me. She keeps going. Finally, she either gets hungry or tired or something like that, and she lets me come up and unleash her and take her back into the house. But that dog would behave as long as I had her close enough where I could get at her. But once she was off the leash and out of the house, she took off. And she didn't want to listen to me and didn't. Sadly, sometimes children are like that. You know, sometimes, you know, as, as parents, we raise our children and they're well-behaved as long as they're in the house where we can get at them. You know, they'll, they'll do what we want them to do as long as we have them on a short leash. But the day comes when they get out of the house and they're off the leash and they don't exactly turn around and laugh at us because they don't want to spend that much time with us. They just take off. And you're left heartbroken. And you're left filled with anxiety for this child whom you love. And you wonder, will she ever come back again? Will he ever come back home again? What will happen again to my child? I learned something from Punkin the dog. I learned that teaching obedience is more than just getting your dog to do tricks. Teaching obedience is getting your dog to love you enough to want to do what pleases you. And loving your children and teaching them obedience is more than teaching them a couple of, of children tricks, right? No. Don't preschoolers just, just gall you because you, they're so cute and they're cute at home and they do cute stuff at home. And so when you're out in public, you say, oh, come on now, do that cute thing. Not going to do it. Why not? You're cute at home. You know, sing the little song, say the little thing, you know, just be cute. 
not going to do it. You know, doesn't that run? But teaching obedience is more than just getting kids to do tricks on cue. Teaching obedience is teaching your children to live in a way not that they need you to support them, but they want to be with you, to fellowship with you. And teaching obedience is about um, putting something inside a child that will direct the child from the inside rather than just on the outside. And so when Paul's writing to the Colossians and he comes to that parent-child relationship and we read that he says, you know, children, obey your parents in everything, for that's pleasing to the Lord. He's not just talking about child-raising techniques but rather he's talking about God's design for the family. This is what parents are teaching to children, teaching children how to be submissive to an internal authority by first learning how to be submissive to an external authority. He says, children, obey your parents. Now, the pagan world would have said, right on. The pagan world would have said, that's exactly right. Children have to obey the parents, particularly children, have to obey the father because the, uh, the economic system back then uh, came to the family. The family was the pater familias. It was the dad's family. And so the child was just another aspect of the economic system. The child was just an economic part of this thing called the family that was supposed to earn money, earn wealth, and accumulate uh, wealth for father, for, for the dad. And so the child's purpose in life was to bring wealth to the dad. And so to say, children, obey your parents was to say, right on, that's the way it ought to be. But Paul meant something more by it than that because he wasn't going back to his culture. He was going back to the Ten Commandments. He wasn't going back to a way to make families uh, work in society. He was going back to a way that families would honor and glorify God. So when he says, children, obey your parents in everything, um, he, he, he's, he's lifting the family up out of being just a mere uh, cultural or economic unit and rather making the family a venue where God is to be honored and glorified. And he says, children, obey your parents in all things. This is what pleases God. This is what pleases the Lord. That's the goal. That, that's the, the, the end result that, that, that we're striving for as we raise our children. You know, a lot of parents, you say, what, what, what goal do you have for your kids? Well, well my goal is that my, my children would be happy. Well, I want them to be happy, but I want them to have the right kind of happy. For I want my children to be successful. I want my children to be wealthy. I, I, I want my children to go up and be competent. And, and all those things are wonderful, and they are, they are, they are goals that, that we have. But the ultimate goal for every parent, for your child, is this, that they would grow up to love and to honor God the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That's the goal of raising children. That's the end result. And not to, to love him out of of, of a sense of guilt or love God out of a sense of duty and response and, and, and obligation, but rather to love God the Father out of a personal encounter with Jesus Christ in which your child fell in love with the Lord Jesus and just can't get enough of abiding in the presence of the Father by the power of the Spirit. That's the goal that we have in mind. And that's why Paul says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this is pleasing to the Lord. That's the goal. It sort of changed 
what the pagan world thought about the family. See, that's why we've been talking about clarity, having clarity in who Jesus Christ is, because the world is saying a bunch of stuff, and the culture around us has a bunch of influences, and, and things are just going in all kinds of ways. And uh, Paul writes Colossians and says, now look, focus in on who Jesus Christ is. He's the image of the invisible God. That means as you relate to God, it's going to be through Jesus Christ. He's the firstborn of all creation. If you're going to understand what creation is all about, you need to do that in Jesus Christ. And he is the head of the body. He's the head of the church. And so in your worship life, your spiritual life, and your growing life, it's all going to take place in Jesus Christ. And so as you have that clarity and understand that all of life is focused on Jesus Christ, our minds, our hearts, our affections set on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Once we understand that, then when we come to home, we understand that Jesus Christ is still Lord. He is still um, to be adored and worshiped. He is still to be exalted and lifted up. And so in the home, with the children, with the parents, he is the focal point. In that context, children obey your parents. And then he goes on to say, and dads, fathers, don't pick at your children all the time. Now, that's, that's sort of the way it should be translated. He says, don't provoke your children. Don't pick at them. You know? um, some of us dads are pretty good at picking at our children. Don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Whatever they did, you know, you did that wrong. Here, let me show you. He says, because they'll become discouraged if you do. He says, don't provoke your children lest they become, uh, the Greek word there, ekstomos, um, has the idea of lest you just suck all the life out of them. Let, you know, don't provoke them or else they're, they're going to lose any sense of, of, of excitement and adventure in life. Don't, don't, just, don't pick at your, at your children or else they're going to wind up in a, in, in, in a condition where, where they just have no, no uh, passion, heart for life. They, they become discouraged, disheartened. And that turned the family upside down. The pagan world didn't understand that. You know, to go to a father and say, look, take care of your sons. Make sure your daughters... Are, are lifted up. Make sure that your children are not discouraged, but rather make sure that you're the one who's helping them along in growing and in particularly growing towards God. It says, fathers, the family doesn't exist to serve you. You exist to serve your family. And that turned the culture of the day upside down. It was a subversive thing to say. And so Paul says, as you have your mind set on Christ Jesus, here's what it's going to mean. Children, obey your parents and everything, for that's pleasing to the Lord. And fathers, don't provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, I'm going to confess to you, it is awfully hard to find positive examples of family life in the Old Testament. I mean, just think about it. If you just quickly run through the book of Genesis, you, you'll, you'll understand what I mean. You come to Adam and Eve, our first parents, and, and they had two boys. And one of them killed the other and then had to hightail it out of town. I mean, what kind of parenting is that? And then you have Abraham who had two sons. He had um, Isaac and he had Ishmael. And uh, uh, they couldn't get along and their mothers couldn't get along. And so finally, Abraham kicks one of his sons out of the house and says, you go live somewhere else. And Ishmael had to leave. What kind of parenting is that? And then you take Isaac, who had Jacob and Esau, and these two boys did not get along at all. 
I mean, Jacob steals the birthright from Esau. Esau's like really upset at Jacob. Jacob has to leave because Esau, his brother, wants to kill him. When Jacob finally comes back, he sends all this wealth to try and buy off his brother so his brother won't kill him. Esau comes along and says, Jacob, I forgive you, but you better live over there and I'll live over here because we can't get along. And then when Jacob had children, by then his name is changed to Israel. He has 12, 12 sons. And, uh, you know, what kind of dad plays favorites? He picks out just his, his one son, Joseph. He says, Joseph's my favorite. I give, him, I give him the brand new coat of many colors. The rest of you guys, hand-me-downs. Okay. But, you know, and he's the youngest, so when, when we hand them down, they're too small for it. But uh, <laughs> I don't know, that just occurred to me. But uh, uh, so, uh, you know, he plays favorites with Joseph. Joseph is his favorite son. Not only that, Joseph is annoying. He goes around saying things to his brothers like, I had a dream, and in my dream, you bowed down to me. Gotta happen, guys, you know. And naturally, they said, oh, we're glad to hear that. Tell us when we... <laughs> no, the, the, the other brothers get together, and when they see Joseph out in the field, they say, look, here, here's the deal. Let's kill him. And Reuben, at least, Reuben says, no, well, let's not kill him, you know. If we kill him, they'll never name a sandwich after me. But let's <laughs> see, you gotta listen or you miss this. But but Reuben says, instead of killing him, let's sell him into uh, or we'll put him down the pit. I'll come back and get him later. And while Reuben is gone, uh, slave traders come by, and so the other brothers they pick up Joseph and they sell him into slavery in Egypt. I mean, this is like a really nice family. It's it's not going to show up in a 1950s sitcom. It'll show up today in a sitcom, but. Uh, you know, it's just not the kind of family you want. So, I mean, and then there's Eli. He had two, two sons, two boys. You remember that? Two preacher's kids. Look how they turned out. <laughs> David had a son, Absalom, who rebelled against him. You know, and on and on it goes. I mean, it's just really hard to find a, a, a perfect family. Here's the good news. God used those families anyway. God used them anyway. You know, those moments when you, when you look at your life and you say, you know, I, I could have been a better dad or I, 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 sh- I could sure be more loving towards my parents or I could be more supportive to my brothers and my sisters and you look at that or maybe you look back at a family that, that was dysfunctional and maybe hurtful and, and, and injurious and, and, you, and you look back at that and you're saying, you know, this, this family that I grew up in was a total wreck. Let me tell you something. God is in the business of using people who grew up in families that were total wrecks. And his grace and his mercy is such that he can invade any home and any family and he can still cause all things to work together for good to those who love him and call, are called according to his purpose. So... Um, so it's kind of hard to find that, that perfect pattern of obedience in the, in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament ends with uh, uh, the book of Malachi, and uh, the fourth chapter, Malachi 4, 5, and 6, um, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Um, and basically, it says, uh, and Malachi prophesying, and, and God says, I, I will send Elijah before the great and dreadful day of judgment. I'll send Elijah back that he might turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Malachi, some 400 years or so before the birth of Christ, 
says that this is God's plan. He's going to send a prophet like Elijah, and when he comes, he's going to put the generations back together. And fathers will start loving their children, and children will start loving their fathers, and it'll come back together again the way God intended it to be. Now, we know that that prophecy was fulfilled in John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist preached and taught in preparation for uh, the appearance of Christ so that people would be oriented towards the message of Jesus. But the greatest sermon John the Baptist ever preached was when he pointed at Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away all the dysfunction in your family. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away all the bitterness and all the spitefulness out of your family. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away all those things that are broken in your family. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away even that sinful way in which parents have hurt children and children have hurt parents. Behold the Lamb of God who takes all that sin away. And that's why Jesus Christ is the hope for the family. And that's why, you know, reading a verse in Scripture that says, children, obey your parents, and just leaving it there, well, that's, you know, that, that's, that's just sort of helpful advice, I suppose. But understanding that that is oriented, it's pointed to, it's focused on Jesus Christ as Lord, that's what makes it different. And so parents, you know, teach obedience to your children. Children, obey your parents. You know, here's how important learning obedience is. Um, li little kids come into the world, and um, they, they really don't know much. They don't, they don't know everything until they're about 14 or 15. But, uh, uh, but they come to the world, and they don't know, know a lot of things. But one of the things they don't know is they don't know how to control themselves in more ways than one. I mean, their, their lives are out of control, and you, you have to pick them up and put them where they need to be. You, you have to dress them and all that. And, and, the, and the, the parenting process is one of getting this child from total helplessness to a point where they can walk and talk on their own and feed themselves and clothe themselves. But more importantly than that is to teach them obedience. Here's why. When a child comes into the world, their, their, their emotions are out of control and, and their will is out of control, and they'll just go off anywhere. And the task of the parent is to teach that child obedience the ability to surrender their will to a will not their own outside of themselves. That, that's your task in teaching obedience. It's very, very important. Um, you know, I, I wasn't a big one with, with uh, trying to reason with a preschooler. You know, now, what are the choices you would like to make? What are the consequences? What would you like to see happen? What would happen if this? How would you feel? Now, I, I don't think that works with preschoolers. Here's what works. Stop it! I mean, every now and then I just yell down the hall, boys, I don't know what you're doing, but stop it. And about 95% of the time, that was the right thing to say. <laughs> but here's the thing, you know, when, 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 when they're really small and you say, stop right there, you want that child to stop right there. Here's why. Because they're getting ready to run into the road and there's a car coming. And it's not funny when they look over their shoulder and they're just so cute. You know how cute they are. And they know they're cute and they, they push the cute button. Oh, I'm so cute. I don't have to do what you're telling me to do. Oh, you're so cute. Let me get the camera. Until the day the car is coming. And that's why 
Parents, you need to teach obedience because someday that child is going to be going out into the world in which a sinful world, in which, in which friends who care nothing about them, in which a society that wants to destroy them is getting ready to hit them broadside. And when you say, stop right there, you want them to listen and stop right there. So the first thing you teach at the, at the preschool level is, is, is that kind of, of, of obedience, the, the surrender of their will to a will not their own that is outside of them. But then as they grow into, into childhood, um, they, you know, the, the normal process is that a child develops a conscience. You teach them the difference between right and wrong, and someday it dawns on them, you know, some things are right and wrong. And usually the next thought is, and I've done the wrong thing. <laughs> but they develop that conscience And what they need at that point is the ability to submit their will to a will not their own internally on the inside. So that as they're going through life, they say, you know, this is wrong. It's wrong to do that. I might want to do that, but I should not do that. I won't do that. And so by teaching obedience, that is the ability to obey a will outside of themselves, now they have the tools and the mechanisms to obey the inner conscience and the will within is submitted to the conscience. Now, we're not done yet because one day that child needs to meet Jesus Christ and fall in love with him. And one day your child needs to understand that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when they accept him as Lord and Savior, ask Jesus into their heart, God sends his Holy Spirit to take up residence in the heart of your child. This is an amazing thing. And now they need to know how. They need to have the tools to know how to submit their will to a will not their own that is inside of them, that is the will of God expressed in the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit can teach all of that like that. But the normal process is that parents teach the mechanisms of obedience so that a child grows up with the ability, knowing how to submit their will to the will of God. They didn't know they were learning that, but when they learned that, the Holy Spirit had a tool that, that, that he can use to, to train up that child and to bring that child where, where he needs to be. That's how important it is to teach obedience to a child. Oh, I've got a lot of advice. You want some advice? This for you. The, the advice is over here. Sermon's over there, advice is over here. So, never tell your child to do something you're not willing to drop everything and make them do it, right? If you tell your child to do something and they don't do it and you decide, you know, I'm too tired right now, it's not that big a deal, I'll just let it go. What have you taught? Disobedience. You've taught that it's okay to reject Authority ultimately to reject the authority of God. Not that you're God, but it's, it's, the dynamics are the same. So when you talk to your child and you, and you tell them to do something, stop and think first. Are you willing to get up out of your lazy boy and walk down the hall and make them do what you just said? Because if you're not, don't tell them to do it. Just don't tell them to. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you know, there's a one in 1,000 chance that my child will accidentally do what I told them to do. I think I'll tell them to do it. <laughs> because yet you need that kind of consistency. They need to know that what, what, what um, dad says, what mom says, that they, that, that, that they mean it. They mean it. So, so don't be telling your children to do stuff if you're not willing to, to drop everything and make them do it. By the way, that means you've got to give up some things in order to, to, to live like that. So that, that's just a word of advice. You, you want another word of advice? 
what would it be? What is it? <laughs> See, De- Debbie, it, it, here, here's the first rule. Here, here's a word of advice. To raise perfect children, marry a perfect wife. Okay. <laughs> you ready for this? I did. <laughs> but, but anyway. I'm telling you, it, it, this hardly ever happens. I have notes up here, and so don't, don't, don't panic. This happened to Winston Churchill once. Okay. Oh, this is a good one. How could anybody forget that? Be present in their life early so you're not a stranger when they become teenagers. There's too many parents, they, they, they farm out their children, and, you know, and, and uh, yeah, you're the one taking them to all these places and events and things, but you're sitting in the bleachers while they're interacting with some other adult, and, and uh, you just take them home and deposit them in their room, and you go do something else, and, and, and you, you know, you never really meet, meet your children and see your children. And, uh, uh, and, and so one day they become a teenager, and, and now you're panicked. And so you're going up to your teenager, and you're saying, I've got something to say to you. And they look at it, and you say, who are you? You know, there's somebody who looks like you who keeps coming in and out of the house, but you've not been in my life. So be present early in a child's life all along the way. That means getting down on the floor and playing cars and making little motor sounds or getting on the floor and playing tea party, which isn't that bad, by the way. It's kind of fun. <laughs> and all along the way, being, being present in the life in a very natural way that they don't even suspect. Can I tell about the sleepovers? Yeah, Debbie says I can tell you. Here, here's a technique that Debbie had. Um, the, the guys would have a bunch of friends over for a sleepover, you know, now, imagine a bunch of, of, of boys in the basement of your house and the danger that you're in, okay, at that point. Well, Debbie would go down there and she'd, anybody want something to eat? Oh, okay. <laughs> then she'd come down, I've got stuff for people to drink. Oh, that's good. And then she'd come. A little while later, she'd come down, oh, well, you know, here, here's some dessert for everybody. And then she'd come down. And then she'd come down, can I get anybody else anything? They never knew it. She was spying on them. <laughs> The whole time. I could go on and on about that, but, but, it, but, but seriously, you just arrange for yourself very naturally without intruding, just be present in your child's life because one day you're going to want to walk into their life and you want to, want to say something like, son, I need to talk to you about this issue, this situation here because you're headed to destruction and I can't let that happen. And if you've been there all along, you're not a stranger. You're not a strange voice. You're someone they'll listen to, hopefully. They'll listen to. So, so be present in that child's life and be present the whole time all along the way. Um, I'll, I'll give you another piece of advice. This, this one's over here so I remember it. That's over here. There is no such thing as quality time. Don't for a minute think you can substitute quality time for quantity of time. 
You know, they, they, I understand what a teachable moment is, but they happen by accident. You can create a teaching environment. You can create in, 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 you know, inducements to learn and those kinds of things. But the real learning moments come when you don't expect them. And the real bonding of a parent and child doesn't happen because you put it on the schedule for that week on Friday at 3 o'clock. You simply have to be there all the time so you'll be that there in that little 30-second window that they give you to, to come into their life and penetrate into their heart. It just takes a lot of time and a lot of time spent together. Now, again, the purpose is that, you know, the, I, I, I think these are pretty good hints. I, I've got a million of them. But, uh, uh, but the point is, how do you get your children and lead them to Jesus Christ? They have to see Christ in you over and over and over again. They have to see Christ in you constantly. They have to see Christ in you in every venue, in every place. They have to see Christ in you at every stage of life. And you've just got to be there showing them Jesus Christ the whole, the whole journey long. And, and frankly, it never ends. It never ends. Okay. So Paul writes to the Colossians, he says, children, obey your parents and everything. That's what pleases God. But parents, don't exasperate your children. Don't pick at them all the time. If you want to destroy your child, just let her know that she isn't worth very much. If you want to destroy your child, just, just sort of send that subtle signal that says, you know, you're kind of stupid. You're, you're, you're sort of out of touch. You're not really very competent. Whatever you try to do, it's wrong. I can show you a way to do it better. If you send that signal to your daughter, if you send that signal to your son, they will spend the rest of their life and they will either try to prove you right and destroy themselves or they'll try to prove you wrong and try to be so good that they'll burn themselves out. Or if they're healthy, and this is the sad part, they'll ignore you, they'll leave town and put as much distance between you and them because they can't stand to be around a toxic parent like that. So love your children. Don't, don't, don't provoke them and, and, and dishearten them. Build them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Um, you know, the book of Proverbs says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Right? But haven't you known loving Christian parents who, who did everything right? You know, as best they were able, you know, nobody's perfect, but as best they were able, they were, they were teaching the, the, the precepts of the Lord and they were, they were giving a Christian example and they were being loving and supportive. And for some reason, that child just took off, emotionally and spiritually, maybe even geographically, just, just took off. And you're left wondering, what happened? And all you've got is the promise of God's Word that you train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he gets old, that, old, that training is going to hound him. It's going to search him out. And no matter what he does, he's going to understand, that's not how I was raised. That's not what I was taught. That's not the example I was given. When he is old, that, that teaching, that training is still going to attach to his heart and to his soul, and it's still going to challenge him, and it's going to seek him out. Now, he still has to decide... He still must make that decision, as all of us must do, to be obedient or to be rebellious. But that inducement, that link will be there the rest of his life when you train up a child in the way that he should go. 
let me say, you know, sermons like this are hard to listen to for some people. Not my sermons, but sermons like this are hard to listen to. And they're hard to listen to sometimes because as a parent, you have a child who's left, left entirely. And all I can say to you is don't give up. God didn't give up on you. Don't you give up on them. Keep praying. Keep the door open as best you can. Reach out as best you are able. Pray for a work of the Holy Spirit in the life of that child. And you don't know how it'll turn out, but you know that there's hope in Christ. And sometimes they're hard to listen to because as a child, you're looking back and you say, you know, my, my parents or my dad was picking at me all the time, or maybe they were absent, or maybe they didn't care about me, or maybe they just cast me adrift, and I just sort of wound up in my young adult years not knowing how I got there. There's forgiveness. He still is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Don't take your eyes off Christ. You know, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger son came to him and said, Dad, I, I really don't like living at home. Tell you what, instead of my waiting until you die to get my inheritance, why don't you give me my inheritance now? And the dad said, sure. And gave this young son all the money that he was going to inherit it. Well, he went off into a far country, and there he started spending his inheritance. He spent it in riotous living. But when the money ran out, so did his friends. And he found himself alone and abandoned, and the only job he could get was feeding the hogs. I've never fed a hog. I don't want to feed a hog. I've driven by hog farms, and I know I don't want to get close to hogs. Some of you haven't been by a hog farm yet. But anyway, he, he winds up and he's feeding the pigs. And the wonderful thing is in this story, in Luke chapter 15, I think it's verse 18, the Greek says, to himself coming, when he came to himself. You know, that kid who'd wasted his life, that wasn't who he was meant to be. That's not who he was raised to be. That wasn't God's design for his life. Scripture says when he came to himself, when he stopped thinking apart from what he'd been taught, but he came to himself as God wanted him to be. He, he came to himself and he said to himself, he says, you know, even the servants in my dad's house eat better than this. Now, I know what I'll do. I, here, here's what I'll do. I'll go home. And when I get home and I see Dad, I'm going to say, Dad, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against God. And I know I can't be a son again, but can I just be a servant in your household? That's what I'll do. And he got up and he started going home. And when he came within, you know, in the distance, his dad sitting at the gate saw his son finally finally saw his son and ran to his boy. And his boy says, Dad, I have sinned against you. No, cut that out, son. You don't need to say that. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to kill the fatted calf and we're going to have a party. We're going to put a robe on you and we're going to put sandals on you and we're going to put rings on your fingers and we're just going to have a blowout like nobody has ever seen before because my son, who was lost, has come home again. And he was welcomed into the home. Oh, how often 
the patient waiting father must have sat at the gate waiting for his son to come home. But by the grace of God, the boy came to himself, and he came home. Don't stop praying. Don't ever give up hope. God's bigger, bigger than this situation. And don't think that home is closed to you. Sometimes, you know, you you go back to parents and, and they treat you like preschoolers still. Understand, they have to do that. But obey your parents and love your parents. I'll give you this. You know, now, now that my boys are my primary uh, retirement plan, <laughs> learn how to care for and feed your parents. Try to understand them. Pray for them. Realize they need Jesus as much as you do. And that's, that's what it means for adults to obey their parents, to honor them in that way. You know, putting your eyes on Christ will turn life upside down. The world won't understand it. The world will give you a thousand reasons why it won't work. The only thing you need to know is that when you come home, what you hear is, welcome home, my child. There's nothing you could ever do that would make me stop loving you. That's the power of grace. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for bringing hope to a hopeless world, for bringing love to loveless relationships. Father, I thank and praise you for bringing grace and healing to brokenness. Father, I thank you that you are a God who has taken away our sin and your son, Christ Jesus. And so I'm I'm asking for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Father, just that heart that's broken today, that heart that's looking back at a family of origin and, and is just saying, I wish things had been different. Father, lift up those eyes to things above where Christ is. Let your Holy Spirit give the confidence and the hope that your grace is greater, bigger, broader. Father, for that parent who is feeling the inadequacy that comes with a small child placed in your arms, I pray you'd give the added measure of your Holy Spirit with the wisdom and the guidance, teaching when to speak, teaching when to be silent and listen. Father, just teaching parents how to love their children. And for all of us, Father, give us the courage of faith to put you first, to exalt Christ in our lives, that he would be absolute master and Lord, sovereign over all that we are, say and do. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.